All right. Um, yes, I am so excited to uh, have the privilege of closing out our nine-week series around the three loves that we've been talking about uh, really for months now. Um, and like Jason mentioned, I am going to finish our last sermon around the loving our neighbors together. You can see all three of our loves that we're talking about. Um, and as I was really praying and asking the Lord to give me a specific word, a real specific message that he wanted me to give to you, I was really wrestling to really try to discern and hear what, what does God want me to really say here? And the reason for that is because uh, around Denver, and I'm not saying this to be boastful or proudful or anything, but we truly, Providence, the people of Providence, you all are known to be like great neighbor lovers, right? I mean, like, and that's a good thing, right? Uh, every time we get together with other pastors or whatever, they're like, hey, we, we just, you're, you're famous for this, right? And so I just wanted the Lord to give me a word that was going to challenge all of us, right, uh, properly. Um, and so I've kind of looked everywhere in scriptures, you know, when, when you have a theme and the Bible is just this big old book, I mean, it's just like, it, you just, you can get lost in all kinds of places. And I was in Isaiah and I felt like for a while, for like a week, I thought it was Isaiah. And then it's just like, no, maybe it's Romans chapter 13. And then it's, you know, uh, but this week I really feel like the Lord settled me and the passage that Sherry read today is really what I believe the Lord would have us uh, spend our morning with. And hopefully, as you heard Sherry uh, read those verses, it became very obvious to you why this is why I'm going to preach on that. It has a lot to do with, with neighbors. Um, but what I want to do is, before I kind of jump into the details of that passage, uh, I want to talk about and I want to point some things out that are not so obvious in this text. So the text that we are, we are going to spend our morning in is, is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And these are like the, the, the summary of Jesus' main teachings in the Gospels, okay? And they are so powerful that even secular, the secular world has acknowledged the power of those teachings and how it has shaped generations through the centuries, how it has shaped cultures. Like, like people at universities, PhD levels, spend their time... Uh, trying to, you know, measure the impact of Jesus' words here. So, so, so that's why I really believe that God's going to have something really powerful for us today. But I want to talk a little bit about the last word in each one of our, of our three loves, right? The word together. The reason why I'm so excited about sharing out of this particular text uh, is because it's countercultural. By every measure that we can possibly... Uh, think about measuring, America is one of the most individualistic countries in the world, right? I'm probably not saying anything that you don't know about, right? But this has an impact in how we actually read the scriptures. And so most of us, and I'm guilty of it for most of my life, I would read the Sermon on the Mount, um, and it, but I would look at it through the lens of like, okay, myself, Right, and so I would read it, and I would say, "Okay, good. I, uh, I'm getting some nuggets, some guidelines here around how to use money, uh, how to view sex, how to view relationships, and now I can incorporate those into my daily living." Right? That's kind of like how I know I used to read it, and I think a lot of people read the Sermon on the Mount in this way. It's almost like it's almost like we turn the Sermon on the Mount into like the Book of Proverbs. Like, oh, there's all these little sayings that are really powerful. Uh, that I can begin to incorporate into some wisdom there that I can, I can bring into my own daily living. But that is the wrong way to read the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because the Sermon of the Mount is about a kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God on earth. And so what Jesus is talking about here is about a community that's counterculture. And what we talk about sometimes is like this alternate community that is living so distinctly that Jesus talks about in, in, in Matthew, which is a parallel Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about this community, this church, as the salt of the earth. That they're living in such a distinct way from the world that everywhere they go, everything they touch, it brings a different flavor than the world. Jesus talked about that this, this, this alternate community was, was the light of the world. And he said, and this, you are like a city set on a hill whose light cannot be hidden. So the Sermon on the Mount is talking about what a community would look like if we all live not by the values of the world, success and power and wealth and approval, right? But what, what, would, what would the world look like if this community, if we were living by the values of the kingdom, the values of sacrifice, the values of service, of love. So, so, so I just want to say this is what we're trying to do here at Providence. So we talk, it's expressed through these three loves, but fundamentally, that's what we're inviting you to do with us. We are seeking as best as we know how to be an alternate community that shows the world, shows our city what what business ethics should look like, what family relationships should look like, what friendship, what race relationships should and could look like. And so we've been saying this all throughout the series, that it is not enough to come on a Sunday morning and hear even this sermon or any sermon that we preach on, and you can go home and you can be inspired, and you can say, okay, now I know how to live, okay? But I want to tell you that is not enough. And many Christians are choosing that route post-pandemic. They're choosing to do it alone. And so what we want to say to you is that you cannot do this alone. You know, the Army a few years ago had the slogan, Army of One. I guess from the Army perspective, you can be an Army of One. But from God's perspective, you cannot be a kingdom of one. You cannot be a kingdom by yourself. And so the invitation here is that you would join this body of believers, this alternate community that's trying as best as we can to live out this reality. And so that's why to each one of those statements, we have the word together. Amen? Now, we know that all of us are on a journey, okay? And so... I want you to hear, if you are a new attender, you've been coming for several months, and you, have, you still don't know if you're going to make a commitment to Providence or not, we want to tell you that that's okay. Like, so, so all of this is just, we're just teaching the scriptures, but we also know that there's other realities that might be pushing up against your life. Maybe you're going through a period of life right now where you, just, you don't know if you're going to be here for the long haul, and so you don't know if you're going to make a commitment to us, and that is totally fine. Maybe some of you have had past hurts. Our church, we get it. We understand, and you need time, and you need to be able to taste and see to see if you can trust. Great. We are patient. We are not going anywhere. We want you to know that we love that you're coming here. But ultimately, we want to challenge you. Our job as pastors, our job as, as, as the church is just to challenge you and to just let you know that we want what is best for you. We want to see life in you, and we truly fundamentally believe that that is when you commit fully to a body of believers. Amen? All right, so that's my introduction there. Um, uh, 
Hopefully you have your Bible open there to Luke chapter 6. And so what Jesus is, is beginning to highlight here um, is, is really where I think the, the rubber meets the road. Uh, when it comes to, you know, we've been talking about loving God, loving our church family together. But there's something really about when we have to go and love our neighbor, where truly, like, all the things that we say we believe are true really is like the, 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 the final marker of whether we believe that that is true or not. And so I was reading a, a, a Latino theologian this week that I thought was really good at this. He had a warning. He said, those who claim to find God while being uninterested in their neighbor will not find the God of the Bible. And I believe that. I believe that. And so this passage right here, Jesus is probably Jesus' clearest, more, most challenging section about how to love those who are outside of our personal circle. Okay, we, that's like a, the church family, that's our personal intimate circle. And Jesus is saying, yeah, but there is a love that you are to have for those who are outside of that circle. And so this morning, I want to share with you three types of neighbors that Jesus is challenging us as we think through loving our neighbor together this year that, that are first and most, it's like a priority that Jesus says, this is, this is how you should prioritize who your neighbor is. Okay, so the first one is the first type of neighbor that we're to love are those who oppose us. And so in the New Testament, when we hear, you know, Jesus had a lot to say about love. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about love. 1 Corinthians 13, Romans 13, uh, a lot of passages. Usually, we immediately naturally think about, hey, loving the church family. Okay, that's like more naturally, that's how where our mind goes. But as we're going to see later, Jesus is actually in a crude way says, yeah, loving those who love you back, uh, um, there's no credit in that. That's like, that's like so basic, there's no credit in that. That's quite like what Jesus says, and we'll unpack that in a minute, which is shocking. But what Jesus here, through this passage, is calling us to a higher ethic. And so, look at verse 27, he says, But to you who are lis- listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. So this is, and most, most theologians agree that this is a turning point in Jesus' teaching. This is like radical love. Um, the Old Testament had a lot of like what we call the golden rule. The golden rule is, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And that's all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, but for a Jew in the Old Testament, a neighbor was somebody that had a similar religious background, similar culture. It was not somebody that was opposed to you, that was oppressing you. And so what Jesus is saying here is that his love is much more demanding of us. See, it is easy to love those who are favorable to us. We all have the crazy neighbor we all have that crazy family member, that crazy cousin that drives us crazy, right? Uh, for, for, for us, uh, we have a neighbor that has been, two neighbors I can think of over the last 10 years that have been really hard to love. One of them is a neighbor that uh, Courtney and I believe called uh, the, park, uh, the park, the city park police on us for having too many cookouts at the park. Uh, he did it in a very passive aggressive, we're pretty sure we know who it is because this person came out yelling and screaming at us one day, uh, showing that he was not very happy that we had 40 people at the park having a good time. 
Uh, and he basically single-handedly shut down a lot of our cookouts at the park, okay? And then we have another neighbor uh, that several years ago, and Courtney, I didn't ask permission for this, but I think it's okay, hopefully, uh, to share this. Oh, man, like we had a, a sweet neighbor to our right. Her name was AJ, and uh, her landlord, it was just this older 75-plus-year-old landlady um, that was kicking our, our neighbor AJ out. She had been there for like 20 years, and it was just this horrible like situation for her. And one Sunday afternoon, this landlady came out accusing Courtney of smoking pot in her laundry room. <laughs> and that was one of the reasons why she was kicking AJ out. And we were like, I mean, and Courtney, you can confess, right? She lost it. I mean, she just went ballistic on this neighbor. Like, she just felt so, like, judged and accused for something that she absolutely didn't do, and she went off. I mean, I was shocked from what I saw, <laughs> right? Uh, okay, so, so we all know, we all have those difficult people, and Jesus is saying, go and do good to them. They're the neighbor, as you look through the Rolodex of, like, all the people that are put in your life, people of Providence, that's a priority, they rise to the top as somebody that you must love. Those who hate you, those who mistreat you. And then look at verse 29. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn them the other also. I think this is not saying what we think it's saying, okay? Like if you go and uh, talk to a martial arts expert and you go, hey, what's the best way to knock somebody down, take them out? Okay, they're not going to say slap them on the cheek, Okay, they're going to say, punch them in the jaw, you know, trip them in the, in the legs or whatever, right? They're not going to say, hit them in the cheek, okay? So it's probably not saying, like, if somebody punches you in the face, okay, give them the other one, right? No. More than likely, what this is talking about is getting kicked out of the synagogue, right? In the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus is preparing his disciples over and over saying, hey, be ready. This is going to be a day you're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. You're going to be accused of blasphemy. And we see in the, in, in the last days of Jesus, the last night before Jesus was crucified, right? What happens to him? He gets arrested. He gets taken to a, to a trial, and the high priest in the middle of the trial slaps Jesus in the, in the cheek, kicking him out of the synagogue. Okay? Now, Getting kicked out of the synagogue back then was not like getting kicked out of the American church, okay? Totally different situations here. Because when you got kicked out of the synagogue, it was the most shameful thing that somebody could do to you, okay? It, it, it meant that every single relational tie that you had in your life was uprooted. If you had a business, it probably meant bankruptcy, okay? This is a big deal. And Jesus is saying, if they kick you out of the synagogue... If they go nuclear on you and try to destroy your life, give them the other cheek. This is pretty serious. This is pretty serious. If someone has committed a wrong against you, Jesus is saying, accept it and be willing to forgive. That almost feels like it's the easy part. But then Jesus says, then be willing to turn around a second time and still offer help. That's what loving our neighbors together means. And this is why, brothers and sisters, this love is supernatural. Because every single natural impulse 
is when you're falsely accused is to retaliate, right? To get revenge, to defend ourselves. And Jesus is saying, nope, that's not, divine love doesn't do that. So we are to love our neighbors that oppose to us. Let's go to the number two. We are to love our neighbors that are less fortunate than us. And so look at verse 29. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, almost every commentary that I read on this, uh, they take this to be in the context of robbery. Uh, so if you are, you know, stopped at gunpoint and they take your shirt, given your undershirt, right, that type of stuff. I, I struggle with that, to be honest. I really believe verse 30 there is the, is the main point of this little section. Give to everyone who asks you. I don't believe that Jesus is just talking about, hey, when you're in the middle of a robbery, hey, here's three things that you should do. That feels too narrow to me. I believe that Jesus here is saying, uh, and so for, for that reason, I take the, the words takes and ask as synonyms. So if someone asks your code, do not withhold it from them. Give everyone who asks you, and if anyone asks what belongs to you, do not demand it back. I think that is at least the reading that I prefer, uh, that the, the, the better lines up with what I think Jesus is trying to convey to us. So when someone comes and says, I am in need, what Jesus is saying, if we're going to love our neighbor, it means that we're going to be recklessly generous. <laughs> We're going to be recklessly generous. A commentary that I read said, loving our neighbors the way Jesus is talking about here requires a level of concern for the poor that is expressing a spirit of self-denial in every encounter of life. That's what I really want to make sure we get right here. Okay, so, so Jesus is not saying here, whenever you're at church and we pass the offering plate, be radically generous. I mean, you already do that. Okay. That is not what Jesus is saying. I really want to press into this, right? Jesus is saying we are to have this reckless, generous mindset and love for neighbors that, that like every day we're wrestling with this thing. So, so, so if we're truly seeking to love our neighbors well, every time we're going to make a, a significant purchase, we're going to be asking. We're going to be wrestling with this. Should I, should I buy this piece of furniture? How is this going to affect my ability to help and radically be generous to my neighbor? that is less fortunate than me. Right before I'm gonna, I'm gonna book a, a vacation or I'm gonna buy a car, right? We're wrestling with this as a family. This is what I think Jesus is getting at more and this is love of neighbor. This is all under the bucket of loving our neighbor. It's like Jesus doesn't want us to ever not think about this. See how that hits a little harder, right? Because the offering plate when it passes, it would be great if that was just it. But that is, that loving our neighbors doesn't stop there, right? It's a radical concern for our, for, our, for our neighbors that are less fortunate than us. Let me just read to you. I, I came across this passage uh, in my studies this, morning, this week that I think uh, hopefully will we'll, we'll, we'll give you a, a little bit of a picture about this. Uh, the Old Testament is full of this type of stuff. But uh, Exodus 20, 22 is talking about, um, again, if you have a neighbor that's in a less fortunate position than you, he talks about something like, hey, lend them money, do not charge them interest. Like, there's a lot of that stuff in there. But, but look at what happens in verse 26. It says, if you take your neighbor's cloak or your coat as a pledge, return it by sunset. 
Why? Because what cloak is the only, that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? See how the law in the Old Testament is much more concerned about what's going to happen if I take that cloak. That is the only cover that they have. I need to give it back to them by sunset so they can at least have something so they're not cold at night. You see the level of concern there that the Old Testament wants us to have. And so the question I have for you is, is that your level of concern for your neighbors that are less fortunate than you? Are you anxious to know how the poor in our city will cover themselves or where will they spend the night? Will they sleep beneath a roof, on the ground, or on a bed? Are there going to be one, two, three, four, five, six people in a room? Loving our neighbors means that we are concerned about each one of those questions. Here's another one. Are we anxious to know as a body if a single parent that is working full-time in our city, making $18 an hour, does that person, does that household have enough to pay the rent, to pay for childcare, to pay for transportation, for, for car repairs, for health care? Do they have enough to cover the very basics of life? Do you know that? Are you concerned for that? Are we concerned for that? And I would argue that the average Christian in our city, in our country, doesn't know the answer to that. And the reason we don't know is because we, like Robert Putman said, we have outsourced all of our mutual care to government institutions, nonprofits, and professionals. Putnam says, I read this week, we have developed communities of limited liability. And I just want to say, brothers, that if we're going to say we're going to love our neighbors together, we want to be the most educated church in our city. We want to be the people that are most educated in our city about the questions to these answers, the answers to these questions. Why? Because we are concerned. We have a level of concern for our neighbors. What are some of the issues that our city is facing right now, our nation is facing right now, right? Housing. Have you heard about housing? Housing is a big issue in our city, and there's lots of conversation about it. Have you heard about health care issues? People having a hard time paying for their health care payments, child care. If you know single parents in our city that are working, that are struggling, child care is always going to be on top of the list. And so there are many different proposals as to how we can solve this problem. But there are usually two camps, right? We kind of know them. There are those who are for those proposals and those who are against those proposals. And I'm not going to say which one is best or not or whatever. All I want to ask you is, did you know why you're for or against those proposals? And if you're against those proposals, why? Is it because you're afraid that you're going to have less money for your household? Or is it because maybe you have a better idea? Great, let's talk about it, right? But, but that's, I find that for, by and large, Whenever I meet with a lot of Christians, especially influential Christians, we have no idea about these issues. So, can we grow in this area of concern for our neighbors? Um, I was going to share some other stuff, but I'm going to skip it, Caleb, so don't worry about it. No extra slides on this one. Um, 
here's a question I, I did want to bring up to you is, and that is, why is it that it seems to me that all the proposals on how to help our neighbors are less fortunate than us, the vast majority of them come from non-Christians. The vast majority come from non-Christians. Where are the ideas coming from the church? We should be the leaders when it comes to policy making. We should be the advocates. We should be the ones that are crying out saying, oh my God, let's do this. Yes, whatever the solutions are, we should get behind them because we love our neighbors. We're concerned for them. But oftentimes, we show our lack of concern by how disinterested. What a privilege it is that for many of us, we can actually be, not even have a clue what's happening. What a privilege that is, right? Loving our neighbors means that we're going to show concern. We're going to be educated. We're going to be advocating on behalf of our less fortunate neighbors. And lastly, I want to say something real quick. Uh, our exec team at Cross Purpose, we have been reading a book called The Strong and the Weak. Really encourages, is a, a book written by uh, Andy Crouch, Strong and Weak. It's a small little book. I'd really encourage you all to read it. I got three copies of it. If you want one, I'll give you one until they're out. Uh, but one of the things that I really appreciate about what he does, he talks about this continuum of vulnerability. Okay? And so he talks about how on this side, um, it's we are in control of everything. Okay? Zero vulnerability. We are like hyper-controlling every single thing. We're, we, we don't want any risk. And then on this side over here is, you know, Ridiculous risk. We're we're risk takers. We we uh, we open our hearts to you know. We're okay with mystery. We're okay with not exactly knowing where this thing is going to end up. And there's a whole continuum there. And so what he says in the book that you can read is, most of us are naturally not risk takers. If we have something, if we have received something, we want to protect it at all costs. Okay. And he has a lot of things to say about that but there's no life in that. So here's a question that I want to ask you is, how often are, are your neighbors knocking at your door, asking for something? This text said, loving, part of loving our neighbors said, hey, when your neighbor knocks at your door and asks you for something, give it to them. Could it be that if like, nobody's knocking at our door, like, like maybe we're like, on this side of, of risk taking, and we have like, so bulletproof our life, and that is possible to do as a Christian. It's, po it's possible to be a, a faithful attender of providence, give money to the, on the offering plate, and still be bulletproof around the risk area. And what I want to change, say to you is, when we open our hearts to our neighbors, the beautiful thing about this is that that's where life is. There's a reason why Jesus said that the poor, those who are less fortunate than us, are rich in faith. Because here, they have to live here. They are not in control of their situations. They're, they're banking on the church actually like voting right. They're banking on the church actually like passing policy that's gonna help them they, because if that doesn't happen, they're exposed. They're vulnerable. And Jesus says, that's where faith is. So for those of us who are maybe on that part of the continuum, the invitation in loving our neighbors together is, let's be risk takers. Let's open our hearts to be recklessly generous to the point that we actually feel vulnerable. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, that's where life is. That's where you're going to experience divine love, okay? All right. Let's keep going. There's one more group. The third group is what I call neighbors that are different than us. Verse 32. 
If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you love those, uh, if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Later on, Jesus says, because, why? Because he is kind and grateful to the wicked. So, so here's the thing. We naturally, so it's just human nature, are going to want to be with people that are like us. We are naturally going to want to be people that love us back, that respect us, that invite us into their homes, or, or when we invite them to their homes, they return the favor, right? Like we, that's normal, natural, human nature type of stuff. And Jesus is saying, of course you're like that. Everybody's like that. Even sinners are like that. That's what Jesus is saying, right? But Jesus here is saying, Christians are going to be different. My people, those who have experienced my divine love, are going to be different because they are going to be on the lookout for people that are completely different than them. And they're going to do the types of things that people only do to their own kind. And they're going to give that type of love to those who are different than them. And so that's what he's saying here. Hey, those who oppose you, those who are your enemies, give them love and forgiveness. Those who hate you, do good to them. Those who curse you, bless them. Those who are less fortunate than you, give them what they ask. For the ungrateful and the wicked, they get extravagant kindness. And so Jesus is saying here, this is how we're to live as a community. It's an alternate community. We're to share, we're to serve, we're to give to them. And so I want to propose to you that the mark of a Christian is the attitude that we have toward those who are deeply different than us. Now, most of the time, when we love those who love us back, those who do good, good to us, those who return favor to us, why do we tend to want to love those people? I would argue it's because most of the time we're looking for a payoff. Some kind of a social payoff, some kind of an emotional payoff. So if I have here person A, right, and this person is a, is a cool person, wealthy, influential, right? That's person A. Person B here is a person that is, uh, they have some anger issues, maybe some mental health issues. Uh, they don't have anything to give, right? Naturally, if we're honest, we're going to want to give love to that person A. We're going to want to do that. Why? It actually has nothing to do with them. It has something to do with us, everything to do with us. Because when person A responds with love back, we're getting something out of it. We're getting something out of it. We become somebody. They validate us. We have access to power and influence. So notice here that Jesus says, if you only love those who love you, three times he says, what credit is that to you? And this thing blew me away. I, I, I was shocked when I discovered this. That word credit is the New Testament word for grace. Did you know that? That word credit is grace, charis. I couldn't believe it. What is Grace. It's unmerited favor, unmerited love. So in other words, if you love, only love those who love you, Jesus is saying, where is the unmerited love in that? If you only love those who, who give you a payoff, Jesus is saying, you're actually not really loving at all. 
If you only love me because you're going to get a profit out of it, you're not loving at all. And there isn't there a way, brothers and sisters, that we can actually love our neighbors together and actually be not in our credit if we're not careful. Because if you're only loving people that give you something, you are loving what they give you. You are not loving them for their sakes. You're loving them for your sake. And that's what Jesus is really trying to expose in us. So, if, here's, a, here's a, an example uh, that I think is really helpful. If you're like an investor, a bank investor, a financial investor, some kind of a uh, venture, capitalist, investor type of thing, like if you're making tons of money, like you've, you have a history of like having amazing deals and you're just making money hand over fist, right? You're probably going to have, be able to take a little more time to be more careful about, hey, what kind of things am I gonna invest in? You're asking different questions. Hey, is this like a socially good thing to do, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and invest in things that are socially good, that are gonna help the climate and all those things. But if you are an investor that's sucking air, and you've had some bad investments, and you're about to go bankrupt, and you're about to lose everything, you, you need to put your money in place where like, you're gonna get a profit out of it. Because you know the stakes are really high for you. You need a significant profit. You're not asking those questions about climate change and all. You, don't have, you cannot even have the opportunity to do that. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is, everyone on the face of the earth is an investor sucking air when it comes to loving others. Everyone on the face of the earth is an investor sucking air when it comes to loving our neighbors. You are not sure if the people that are loving you today are going to be there tomorrow to love you back. And so you're hungry and thirsty to put the investments in the right places because you got to make sure you have love coming back to you. That's what the average person in our world believes. And so that's why you make distinctions about what kind of neighbors you're going to be approaching. Because you need a significant payoff. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly, I believe, the problem with the church. Okay? Most churches out there, if they're worth their salt, are going to say, we love our neighbors. But the devil's in the details. What kind of neighbors are we going to love? And I think Jesus, for us, brothers and sisters, is very clear about what kind of neighbors need to be prioritized. So the reason why Jesus says that we don't get credit when we love people for the payoff is that that is exactly the way the world loves. It's self-centered love. That's how we love naturally. And so our only hope, brothers and sisters, is that if we're going to love our neighbors together the way that Jesus is talking about here, we're going to have to experience an ocean of unmerited love. And that's why this is supernatural. That's why the world cannot love this way. The hymn, I love the, the final stance of the, the hymn, The Love of God, it says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Brothers and sisters, we have Jesus here in his own teachings. He lived those teachings in his own life. 
the night before he was to be crucified, he was arrested by his enemies, those who opposed him, those who hated him. He was falsely accused. And while he was being falsely accused, he stayed silent. He did not defend himself. He was slapped in the face. He was shamed. He was wrongly sentenced to death. And he was scourged even on the cross. But even on the cross, he blessed those who cursed him. Remember the thief on the cross? His last words were, tonight you will be with me in paradise. He blessed to the end, even his enemies. I'll finish with this. The, the images in the, from this past two weeks around Ukraine and Russia are just devastating. And this week I was deeply touched by a, a short two-minute video that I saw uh, from Germany. Maybe you saw it. Um, and there's 1.3 million refugees leaving Ukraine all over you know, Europe. And this particular video was in a city in Germany where all of these refugees are coming in, in the train. It's this train station, and the video is just crazy. And there's refugees coming out of the train. And then there's a group of people, Germans with signs, saying, I can take four long term. It doesn't matter. And every day, they're licking up every single refugee that's coming in. Like, there's literally nobody left. And then they go home. And then they show up the next day. And I was thinking about this. How powerful that for many of those Germans, they know what tyranny looks like. Many of their family members experienced the tyranny of Hitler. Many of their family members experienced their city, their country being completely torn apart by war and experienced the unmerited favor of the world in helping them rebuild their country. And so now, out of that ocean of experience, they're out there going like, of course we're going to go. We're not even going to ask questions who they are. Like, I'll take the first person that shows up. No questions asked. Because they have experienced that. What I want to call us out to, brothers and sisters, is let's dig deep into the love of God, this ocean of unmerited love that we have experienced ourselves. And together, seek to love our neighbors, what we talk about, the expensive way. Amen.